for the word and turn to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. I'm pleased to announce that uh, we've made enough progress in trying to understand what Paul's doing here that we can come back to our study. Thank you for your patience. First Corinthians thirteen. And we're just going to tackle verses 1 through 3 this morning. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but don't have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. Let's ask God to help us understand this passage of Scripture. Almighty God and everlasting Father, who has established us in the covenant of reconciliation through the blood of Your Son, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. This we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. It's possible that some of you lost faith (laughs) that we would ever return to 1 Corinthians 13. We're coming back to it today, uh, after putting it off as long as possible, trying to understand what's going on here. And I have to confess uh, that in studying, I think I found some things out that have been helpful uh, to the exposition of this passage. And then I also have to be honest with you that there's uh, some loose ends that I'm not quite confident in as we come into this passage this morning. And it reminds me that that's just the way it is when we study the Bible. Uh, You know, the Apostle Paul put it uh, with uh, such succinctness when he said in 1 Corinthians 11.34, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Uh, This is what it's like to study Scripture. Uh, Because Scripture is the expression of the representation of the mind of God, and because its depths are unfathomable very often, When we come to the Bible, we find things that are hard for us to understand and to catch hold of. And it's very often something like a process of catching glimpses over and over again, an expanding kind of a base of knowledge. Yet the more we study the Scriptures, the more we begin to understand. At the same time, we more begin to understand, the more we also are aware that we haven't fully grasped. And so that brings us back to the Bible, over and over and over again, with humility and uh, with a resolve and a determination to study it with all of our might so that we can understand and then apply and confess and teach what God has revealed in His Word. Now, as you come to this passage, you say, well, Pastor Sato, why is it that you have been concerned about 1 Corinthians for so long? Why is it that you've been putting it off for several weeks trying to understand it? And let me just give you a couple representative remarks uh, from top-notch scholars. One of them said, it seems on the surface of it that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a digression, that's... Uh, Exhibit A and Exhibit B is this. uh, Much controversy surrounds this chapter. You say, what in the world? It's uh, it's a seemingly obvious 
chapter. After all, it's all about love. And it's true, it is all about love. Uh, but there's a couple of difficulties with this chapter. One is the intensity of this exposition of love. It is like nothing you find anywhere in all the literature of all of the world about the concept of love. And that's why this chapter is ready-made to be used in weddings. And so everybody knows that if you're going to get married, you have to have a reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Whether it's understood in terms of its context, in terms of its aim, its focus, its purpose, it doesn't matter. Because it is a beautiful soliloquy about love. But when you begin to ask this question, why? See, that's always a very dangerous question to ask. It's one that always leads you into a deeper and deeper uh, insights, but also one of greater and greater questions. Why? Why here? That's a very important question to ask. After all, if you took a chapter 13 out of the book of Corinthians, it would be almost seamless to transfer from the end of chapter 12 into chapter 14 which has led a lot of scholars to think, wow, what is going on here? And that's the question we want to ask as we come to chapter 13. Why is it here? Why did he say it this way? And what is he trying to accomplish? Just put those questions in your mind. Why is it here? Why did he say it this way? And what is he trying to accomplish in the church? Now, To sort of get at that, we need to step back and put our passage into its proper context. And of course, you realize that chapter 13 is part of a broader unit between chapters 11 and chapters 14, and it all deals with public worship. It all deals with public worship. So if you turn back to chapter 11, uh, you'll see there that the apostle deals with the issue of head coverings and worship. After he deals with that passage, he moves on into the Lord's Supper and worship. And in chapter 12, uh, he has to now deal with the issue of the gifts of tongues and prophecy. But remember, it's not just in the abstract. It's not as if the apostle thought it would be a good idea just to talk for uh, several chapters about spiritual gifts. The whole point of the conversation about the spiritual gifts in 12 and 14 is about how they're to be used in worship. And so the entire section uh, here is about worship. A very helpful thing to keep in mind as we begin to examine uh, this passage. But as you study uh, these chapters, for instance, chapter 12, you see that Paul has a couple of things uh, that may uh, help us uh, gain better insight into why Paul has said what he has said here. And and the first uh, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In the very first few verses, you can see that one of the things that had to be corrected in terms of the Corinthian understanding of spiritual gifts is it developed within them a false sense of spirituality. We covered this some time ago. Uh, But he said, for instance, in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, now concerning spiritual. Now, your translation will say gifts there. And gifts is in italics, which means it's not in the original, it's not in the passage. And when we went through this, we said, here's what Paul is dealing with. Spirituality. Paul is saying, now concerning spirituality, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware. You see, they had developed a false sense of spirituality, 
and the Corinthians had identified or rather equated speaking in tongues or having spectacular spiritual gifts with being super spiritual kind of people. And basically, they were able to identify the most spiritual and the most important people in the church by the kinds of gifts that they exercised. And Paul said that's 100% wrong. He says, here's how you determine and evaluate true spirituality. It's doctrinal. He says in verse 3 of chapter 12, I want to make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is a curse and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He says, here's how you evaluate true spirituality. What do they say about Christ? What do they say? Paul says, here is the acid test of Christian spirituality. Do they confess Him as Lord? Do they confess Jesus Christ, the Son of God, true God and true man? Do they confess Him as Lord? So he has to correct that. And then he has to correct the overemphasis of tongues and their use in Christian worship. Now, it's very clear here that tongues are a major issue to the Corinthians because they are used, or the, the word tongues is used so many, so many different times here. Uh, Paul has to talk about tongues and place them on equal footing with the other spiritual gifts, as you see in verses 4 through 6, and then 8 through 11, and then the other gift lists in 28 through 30. But you can see this problem of tongues uh, from a quote from Dr. Gordon Fee. Just listen to uh, how he describes this overestimation of the value of tongues. Uh, he says, Even the most casual reading of 1 Corinthians 12-14 through 14 makes it abundantly clear that the problem has to do with the gift of tongues. This can be seen by the sheer weight of the numbers. Speaking in tongues is mentioned or referenced 19 times in these two or three chapters. And the problem was that the church was being divided. It was being divided over the issue of speaking in tongues. It was being divided over a false sense of spirituality. It was uh, really being divided uh, into the categories of the haves and the have-nots. The apostle had to say, wait a second, here is the issue. There's a more excellent way. There's, there's a broader perspective, Corinthians, you have to consider. You can see that now uh, as we come closer to our text. Uh, chapter 12, verse 31. He says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, and I show you still a more excellent way. And that leads into this whole discussion of love. Now, by the way, uh, just turn over in your Bibles. You can see it. Just glance over uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verse 1. He says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. So you can see that, uh, that this idea of pursuing love is the real issue now. And what Paul is doing in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13 is sort of building up a framework. And he's saying, uh, it's wonderful that we have all these spiritual gifts. It's wonderful that you're speaking in tongues so that people can hear the gospel in their own language. It's wonderful that you can prophesy. It's wonderful that you have faith that can move mountains. It's wonderful that you have uh, this, this full array of gifts within this body here in Corinth to attest to the gospel, to communicate the truth, and to be a vibrant witness for Christ. But here's the point to the Corinthians. And then here's the point to the church throughout all ages. Whatever you do in the service of Christ has to be done. Has to be done within the framework of love. 
or it's useless. Now just think about that a second. Whatever you do has to be done within the framework of love or it's useless. It's nothing. That's what begins to make 1 Corinthians 13 such a gripping challenge to us. Whatever you do as a church, whatever you do as a Christian, has to be done within the framework of love. Or the Apostle said it's useless. It's nothing. And that's a sobering challenge to us this morning as we think about uh, what the Apostle says here. And with that in mind, uh, we're going to want to begin to uh, dig in to our passage and see how Paul unfolds this point. And and the first thing that we want to see is in verse 1. Paul gives us a series of it's better than statements in verse 1, 2, and 3. First of all, he says, love is better than self-promoting Christianity. Verse 1, love is better than self-promoting Christianity. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Basically, he says, you Corinthians, you are super infatuated with tongues. You have to realize this, that it's nothing. You're you're, you're basically uh, just a loud, clanging noise. That's all that it means here when he says tongue of men and tongue of angels. Tongues of men just has reference to being able to communicate the word of God in a language that other people can understand, another foreign language. Sometimes people have seen this tongue of angels thing and said, oh, well, it must be some super spiritual language. Uh, but I think really the best read on that is, is that it's hyperbole. It's just hyperbole, as John Calvin says. Uh, Paul is simply using a hyperbob- hyperbolic expression to denote what is distinguished. In other words, the most elevated kind of think and talk you can think of. Paul says, I don't care, uh, it, maybe it's, it's the, the talk of the smartest of the smart people. At the end of the day, he says, if it's separated from love... It's just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, why would he say it that way? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one is that most of the people that he is addressing here in the book of Corinth probably took part in uh, some of the pagan worship festivals before they became Christians. And one of the things that was associated uh, with the pagan worship symbols in Corinth was brass cymbals. Because brass happened to be a very important commodity in Corinth. In fact, Corinthian brass was considered to be almost on par with gold in terms of its value. But these uh, brass symbols were used within the context of the worship uh, service of some of the gods in Corinth. And so they would have understood very uh, readily and very quickly what Paul is talking about. Sort of just this empty ceremony. But then you add to it uh, how tongues are being employed in Corinth. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23. Uh, It says, If the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, uh, will they not say that you are mad? You see, here is the situation. We'll have to unfold that more when we get to chapter 14. But the situation is this. Uh, The people who have this capacity to speak in tongues, it almost sounds as if uh, they began to just babble out loud in the middle of the worship service, and it was creating nothing but chaos and confusion. Now, Paul uh, applies a self-evident remedy to this. Okay? In just a few verses subsequent to that, 
He says in verse 21, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, each in turn, so one can interpret. He said, uh, see, they're babbling out loud all at once, simultaneously, trying to communicate the message of the gospel, and it's just utterly confusing to people who don't speak in tongues or to people who are uh, visitors for the first day. Can you imagine uh, inviting a, a friend to church here in the morning and then having all of the members of the congregation, or at least 20 or 30% of the members of the congregation, begin to speak in foreign languages. Simultaneously, trying to communicate what it is that I'm saying. Out loud. You, you can only imagine uh, how horrified you would be and your guests would be. That's what was going on here. And so Paul simply applies a self-evident remedy to the situation. He says, stop talking all at once, number one. And number two, let's uh, one go at a time. And once they have communicated uh, what they need to say, then interpret it. Right there, live, on the spot, so that those who hear in that language uh, can be blessed, can be edified. And so... To that situation, Paul says uh, to these Corinthians who are really, really obsessed with the use of tongues, he says uh, that it's unloving. It's completely unloving and that it's dangerous and it's uh, damaging to those who are coming to worship with the saints. And so he says, if you're doing this speaking in tongues, just babbling out loud without regard for decorum or for order, he said, uh, it's without love. And it's a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Well, he brings up another it's a better than statement then in verse 2. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. We've seen this word prophecy already here many times in our context. It's uh, simply the ability to communicate a divine, inspired uh, revelation from God to the church. And, And the fruit of prophecy is this. You know all mysteries and all knowledge. Uh, Mysteries is simply a category of revelation in the New Testament. It is simply a way of describing the proclamation about Christ. One passage that makes this just really clear, we could go through many, but it's Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 25 and 26. And the Apostle Paul said he has been made a minister that he might carry out the preaching of the Word of God. And then he says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Very easily, to, very easy to see here what Paul means by this word mystery. Mystery is a preaching of the word of God, the gospel about Jesus Christ, which was hidden in ages past, but is now revealed. Why? Well, it's revealed because of the incarnation. It's revealed because Jesus Christ has come, and he has performed the final climactic redemptive work. So now it's being communicated. And so uh, the fruit of prophecy is that they know the mysteries. The fruit of prophecy is that they understand about Christ, that he has become incarnate, that he is the Son of God, that he has come to redeem his people from their sins, and the implications of that. That's how you have to read knowledge as well then, okay? That's the second little follow-up here. That's the fruit of prophecy. So they have all knowledge. I don't really believe what the Apostle is saying here is that you know all of the information on Wikipedia. 
It's not Encyclopedia Britannica kind of stuff here. What he's saying is that I have all knowledge. Knowledge of the mysteries. Knowledge of the revelation of God. Knowledge of the new covenant about Jesus Christ and so forth. You can have all of that. Interestingly, he also plugs in uh, another thing. Faith. And let's be clear. Uh, Let's not let this snag us up here. Uh, He says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains. Now, a common misinterpretation of this passage uh, by some has been that Paul is saying that uh, you could have faith in Jesus Christ and it's meaningless if you don't have love at the same time. So basically, they will argue that both faith and love work together to justify us. That's wrong. Because Paul clarifies the kind of faith that he's speaking about. He says it's the kind of faith that moves mountains. And, and that reminds us then of the words of Jesus Christ, right? Matthew chapter 21. Jesus speaks about this kind of faith. And he's talking to his disciples. And he says, truly, truly. I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will be able to say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and it will happen. But Jesus went on to explain there's a a way that that miracle is affected. Makes it clear in verse 22, that same passage. He says, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Speaking to his disciples, he's talking about this miraculous capacity to affect miracles through prayer. Now, it seems that there could have been a few people here in Corinth who may have had some uh, portion of this miraculous power, or maybe Paul is again just overstating the case for dramatic effect. And I would tend to think it's probably that, because I believe this capacity that Paul speaks of here, these very powerful supernatural miracles were given basically I believe only to the apostles but even to, even let's just say there were some that have it here's, here's the stunning thing is that he says even if I have that so I have prophecy which tells me all the mysteries and all the knowledge I need to know in other words all the content of New Testament revelation and I have this ability to work these uh, just tremendous uh, spectacular miracles and I don't have love Again, that is nothing. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty sobering. But remember, Jesus already said that. Remember, Jesus already said that. He says, I said, there's going to be a whole lot of people who come to me in the last day and said, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we feed the homeless in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't, um, didn't we perform miracles in your name? And what did Jesus say he would say to all those people who come to him, uh, claiming their works as the basis for being received? Depart from me, iniquity, I never knew you. So much for being obsessed with spiritual gifts and miraculous powers, right? By the way, isn't this what we're being told is the key to revitalization of the church today? Isn't this the great indication or sign or symbol that, uh, uh, that there's real Christianity in our midst is that people speak in tongues, they prophesy, and they perform miracles? Not what Jesus says. You could have all of that. You could have all of that. Paul will say, you could have all of that. Do you have love, though? If you don't, Paul says, it's nothing. So you say, wow, okay, that's, uh, 
That's an amazing standard. And by the way, go ahead and get them, Paul. Because we don't believe in that stuff anyway. We don't believe in speaking in tongues. We don't believe in prophecies and all that stuff anymore. Right? That all passed away with the coming of the Bible. So we don't. I guess as Reformed people, we could say, yeah. They're probably too obsessed and too absorbed with these spectacular things. But but this is where you really run into a snag in verse 3, if that's the mentality. Because this is one of those verses that's really, really hard to get over. He says, if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Oh, it's easy for us to look at the miracles and tongues and say, that stuff's all phony. Of course, we, we don't believe in that. But really, Paul, I can give all of my possessions. And really how this reads in the original is that somebody who has substantial means, uh, just as a regular process, just distributes them to people who are needy. They're not calling attention to themselves. Just, it's just a manner of life for them. They're the kind of people... Who would literally give you the shirt off their back? Didn't want a reward for it. Didn't ask for headlines. Didn't, didn't call the press to tell them that, uh, that there's some guy down the neighborhood here who's just is blessing everybody around. Doesn't say that at all. They just This is their way of life. They feed people. They care for people. This next phrase is, 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 is very similar. Now I know in your Bibles it says, and if I surrender my body to be burned, there's a dispute in the manuscript here. The, the, the very earliest manuscripts that are available to us, it doesn't say burned. It says boast. Uh, you, have a transla- you probably have a column note in your translation. It'll say, uh, say that very same thing. Uh, I'm on the side where I think it means, I think that the word in the original is boast. Uh, because the earliest manuscripts have it. And second of all, uh, because... The, the way the word would be grammatically, if it were burned, would be an extremely unusual grammatical construction, which makes it a hard reading. But, but add to it this evidence. Clement, who was uh, one of the pals of the apostles, actually, a pastor, uh, wrote towards the end of the first century an extended letter, which we call today First Clement, <laughs> It talks about this very practice of, of surrendering your body for the benefit of others. First Clement 55, verse 2. We know that many among ourselves have delivered themselves to bondage that they might ransom others. Many have sold themselves to slavery, receiving the price paid for themselves to have others fed. He's talking about church members. That's pretty extreme when you think about it. It's one thing uh, to set up a homeless shelter out of your house and to be the kind of person uh, who helps everybody around you when they're in need. It's just a way of life. But this is raising it to a, to a brand new level to sell yourself into slavery and to take that money that was used to auction you off to sell you to give it to somebody else so they could be fed and clothed. That sounds like real... Self-sacrifice. But, but Paul says, if you, if you do that, and you don't have love, 
it still is useless. And this is kind of that point when you sort of throw up your hands in despair when you read this passage because you say, oh, wow, I thought that was love. I thought that was love. And by the way, that just completely uh, demolishes uh, the secular uh, humanist. And uh, they're not wanting to get into theological debates, just love people, and that's their expression of religion. Throws that out too. Because Paul says even to people like that, it's still useless. You get your reward, people see you, but it's useless. Uh, that leads us into some application this morning to think about what Paul would say. And uh, the very first thing that uh, flows from the analysis of this passage is that love is necessary. Love is necessary. That's what these first few verses are saying. Uh, to the Corinthians and then to us, love is necessary. It's going to be described in verses 4 through 7 and its permanence. It's going to be talked about towards the end of the chapter. But the very first thing that the Apostle wants to say here to, to Christians is that love is necessary. This excellent way that the Apostle Paul describes uh, in chapter 12, verse 31. He says, I still show you a more excellent way. That way is love. And he says, that way is necessary. And you stop and think about it and you go, well, of course it is. Uh, Jesus already told us it is. For instance, in the Gospel, He said, uh, the first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, Jesus has already told us in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 35, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, the great aim of the cross, according to Jesus Christ, is to deal with the guilt of sin and the corruption of sin and the power of sin so that we could be something. So that we could be loving people. Just like Jesus did. Uh, again, this is what we're going to find in the Apostle Paul explaining about what the cross is about to us. Yes, it's about, it's about breaking the power of sin. Yes, it's about dealing with the guilt of sin. But really, the cross is also about uh, making us be the kind of people who were just like Jesus. Laying down our life and loving service to others. And this leads us into thinking about some things for a moment. This necessity of love is a very important thing for us uh, to grasp hold of, really, because we can almost be led into sort of a maze of confusion uh, if we try to sit down and think about, well, what are the most important identifying features of Christianity in the church? And then we'll just be that. Well, let me set it up like this. Some churches debate, uh, this is all part of the church planning literature, and you probably haven't read much of it, but it's a debate that's been going on for quite a while. It's not entirely brand new, but you see, the idea is that we're going to be a particular kind of a church. We have to, we have to figure out what the ethos of the church is going to be, and then we sort of build the program of the church and the structure of the church and the stuff of the church around the idea. Oh, and you could be a doctrinal church if you'd like. And that sounds good to reform people, because we like doctrine. Let's be a doctrinal church. And uh, we realized, after all, that uh, all that experiential, touchy-feely stuff is not for us. Uh, we're not into experiences. We don't have emotions. Uh, we'd rather just be into doctrine with a capital D. So we become policy wonks. 
uh, learning systematic theology from A to Z backwards and forwards, up and down, and then the church becomes a debating club where we debate theological issues and their implications, and we smugly look down our nose at people who are know-nothing kinds of Christians. There's plenty of that as expression of reforms. Or we could become experience-oriented church. That you know, doctrine's okay, but you know what's really what's needed today is experience. And so what we decide to do is organize the program of the church around uh, highly emotional, experiential worship and church life. And so we have we have powerful, moving religious services every week because we want people to get into touch with God. And so all of our Christian experience is set up to move from one powerful, emotional, religious experience to the next. And everybody knows that the church itself and its worship can't really bear the full force of that, so we generously scatter in uh, mountain retreats in the meantime where we can go up high and get closer to God and then come back down and continue to have our emotional experiences. And so the Christian life is kind of treated like driving an electric car from one recharging station to the next. And then others say, you know what? That's really hard to maintain. It'd be better to be a doing church. And so we're going to have all kinds of programs where we just do. That doctrine, you know, it's kind of heady. It makes people puffed up. Emotional experiences are just kind of shallow after a while. But if I know anything, we should be a doing church. i got to suspect that there's some of this kind of a battle going on in Corinth. You have, you have the experienced crowd who really likes the tongues and, and the prophecy. Uh, there's no doubt people in there who are interested in doctrine. And then you have your doers. But, but you know what the Apostle Paul says? Is he looks at all of that, uh, the, the full uh, table of options there, and he says, it doesn't matter if you isolate any one of those things from love. It's nothing. It's not wrong to know doctrine. It's just not. It, it's the backbone of the church. There must be doctrinal experiences in church. There's nothing wrong with being emotional either. This is the other problem that sometimes we swing to this pendulum in the Reformed Church. And we say, well, we, we, we all know that emotion, that everything's wrong with the new worship is that it's, it's emotional. And you say, oh yeah? you telling me you're never emotional? You're never moved by the preaching of the gospel? You're never moved by the singing of the psalms? You're never moved by Christian fellowship and worship at church? If you're not, there's something radically wrong there too. And of course there's nothing wrong with doing. How could there be anything wrong with doing? How could there be anything wrong with, with, with helping people who are in need? But what Paul says, and this is the challenging thing, we're going to sort of build up this challenge as we go, is that he says, any one of those things, or all three of them taken together, if they're isolated from love, Paul says, they're nothing. So that brings us into the second point of application. Love is necessary, and we have to fix that firmly in our minds if we're Christians this morning. Love is essential. The Christian life just simply cannot be lived without love. 
But the second thing here, and this sort of clarifies this point and maybe builds and expands upon it, is that love is now indicated by what it aims at. Love is indicated by what it aims at. And that's edification. Love aims at building other people up. And that's how you see whether it's love. That's the intention and the motivation and the heart of the person who's believing and who's doing and going to... The entire thing is about the internal perspective, the reason for it, the motive for it, and the aim is about edification. Turn with me to a passage that we need to, to think about in connection. That's 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And I think maybe it's a misapplication of this, this verse that sometimes leads us to in practice separate doing from loving. And maybe it's not. Maybe it's just our personalities too. That can be part of it. But yeah, this is a very powerful and important passage here because John says we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He says we know what love is. Love is action. You can see it here. Jesus didn't just sit in heaven and talk piously about loving us. Uh, Jesus didn't just sit in heaven and spin out poems about love and say, see, I love you. No, what John says is that Jesus showed us his love because he came down and he laid down his life for us. And then John says, well, this is what you're to do in return then. You're to lay down your life for the brother. And then he gives a very concrete example. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see... John makes the point clear that you can't just sit around talking about being a loving Christian. That's not what it is to be a loving Christian. Just to talk about it and, and, and think of yourself as being loving. John says, here's how you know whether you're loving by what you're doing. You say, wow, well, they're Paul and John in conflict. The answer is no. Um, it's not that they're in conflict. It's that we're in conflict. Here's why. And, and I can't really give uh, proof from the body of the Corinthian discourse that this is happening, um, but it probably is, or Paul wouldn't have said what he says here about giving the possessions to feed the poor and surrendering uh, all of your body to, to help those who are in need. If something happens sometimes that uh, we hear this commandment to love, and we keep hearing, you've got to love people, you've got to do things, you've got to be busy, you've got to help others. And, and you have a, a, a right conscience about that, you receive it as, as divine and authoritative and something that you ought to do, and then pretty soon the loving actions turn into what? Duty. It's just becoming duty, you just start to grind it out. And all of the work and the service and the help towards others is just a duty. And you can see when that happens. And this happens to pastors, and it happens to elders, and it happens to deacons, and it happens to church members. And it happens to people who run homeless shelters. But after a while, they become cynical. They become bitter. Because they see that so much of the work that's been done is apparently fruitless. 
at least from their own perspective. And it's just, they know they can't stop doing it, but, but they know that what it is is just duty. But you see, what, what John says and what brings him into uh, compatibility with Paul is that none of the things that you do can ever be separated from love because as soon as that source is cut off from the action, it just becomes duty. You see, the key in John 3.17 is what, what the Apostle says. If, if he looks at the person who is in need and closes his heart to him, how do you say the love of God is in him? You see, John can see that this love is going to flow from the inner depths of the person. And if that's what's happened to you, maybe you got tired of serving because people wore you out. Well, that can happen. But you see, the admonition here of the Apostle Paul, when you think about the excellency of love, especially in connection with verse 3, is you have to go back to the roots and the wellspring of love. It's in the heart. People can be exasperating. Uh, You can be overwhelmed by the giving and the the constant helping of others. That's very, very true. When that happens, the admonition of Paul or John or Jesus would be, go back to the root of love. Go back to the root of the action, which is the heart. It's about loving people. And when our attitudes are correct, then the actions begin to flow much easier. And then we remember the aim. What was the aim of the action? It was to edify. It was to build up. It was to bless. And that's the aim that we need to think about this morning. The actions that we're doing in the name of Jesus Christ towards our neighbor is the aim edification, is the aim loving, or has it just become a duty? Jesus would admonish us to cultivate love in our heart towards those who we serve. Well, the third application that flows from this passage, finally, is that love is about Jesus Christ. You know, when I tell you that love is about edifying somebody and not just doing a duty and not just following a certain set of actions, that's only going to last so long. If I have to attempt to cultivate some sort of attitude or emotion in my heart, eventually it's going to be nearly impossible for me because it's just an emotion. It has to be rooted in something deeper and more profound and and, and substantive than that. And that's where this passage begins uh, to really open up our perspective because what the Apostle is speaking about is not a mere human attitude. He's talking about an attitude which is found only in Jesus Christ and is nourished in Jesus Christ and is rooted in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how do you know that? If you read chapter 13, you'll be surprised to find that the name of Jesus Christ is not mentioned a single time. How could it be, then, that love is about Jesus Christ? And the reason why it's about Jesus Christ is because of the word that the Apostle uses. You know, it's fascinating out of uh, a whole handful of words that Paul could have used to describe love in the Greek language. He chooses one word. Agape. If you look at the uh, Greek translation of 
The Hebrew, the Old Testament, is called the Septuagint. It's used merely a handful of times, or hardly ever. If you look at all of the available literature from that day that's written in Greek, it's used three times. And yet, if you look at the New Testament, the word agape is used 116 times and over 70 times by Paul himself. What you begin to realize uh, from that is that the Christian church picked this language up. It picked this particular word up. And what A.T. Robertson says is probably true. The rare use of the word made it useful for Christians so we could distinguish it from the other kinds of love that the Greek world used. But you still cannot separate that fact from this, that Christians filled it up with particular content. They filled it up with the content of the gospel. This word love is used repeatedly in reference to the gospel. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to the propitiation for our sins. How many times did John use the word love there? Every single one of the uses of love there is that same word. But you see here, uh, it was filled up with peculiar Christian content. God loved us, and we can see the fruit of that is the propitiation. The Son of God being sent to be the propitiation. The Apostle Paul uses the same word, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. He says, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice. Again, the concept, the word is being filled up with, with Christian content. Uh, we can multiply lots and lots of references in, in, in the New Testament. The point of it is, this, this word became the peculiar word of the Christians, and it, and it, and it denoted something very peculiar. A love which is rooted in Jesus Christ and in His cross. A love which is rooted in a divine love which has its origins in eternity in the very heart of God and expressed with perfection in the cross of Christ. So it's not wrong to say. And this is probably the most profound and important takeaway point of the morning. A love is about Jesus Christ. And so when Paul speaks about love here in in 1 Corinthians 13, ultimately Paul is speaking about Jesus Christ. Nothing that we can do will be useful or anything if it's ever separated from its root and from its source. Christ. So love has become the proof of the Christian. It's the proof that they have understood the gospel. John chapter 4 verse 11. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's the characteristic of the disciple of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's love covering a multitude of sins according to James chapter 5. It's, it's love being the perfect bond of unity according to Paul in Colossians 3. You see, it's always rooted in Christ. It's about Christ. And so what the Apostle is saying here is that 
these Christians have become so obsessed with things, with spiritual gifts, with ideas, with practices, and they have severed everything off from the real root, which is Christ. And so the admonition of the church, or to the church, not just then, but to us now, is is to come back to this more excellent way, which is realizing that our, our lives are hidden with God in Jesus Christ. And that that is the deep source and root of all of our believing and all of our doing and all of our speaking and all of our serving. It has to be in Jesus Christ. And it has to be with the aim of being a blessing and an edification to the people of God. So that's the more excellent way of love that the Apostle speaks of. It's it's in it's essential to the Christian life. It's demonstrated by its aim, which is edification. It's all about Christ. And so that's what we need. We need to be built up in Christ. Rooted in Him. Having fruit flowing out of Him. And the love of Christ which moves our heart to be a blessing to others. That's the excellent way, and that's what Paul calls us to do this morning as the body of the Lord Jesus as to lock arm in arm with each other and to pursue this path of love for the glory of God and the blessing of His people. Let's pray. The Father in Heaven, we thank You for the challenge of Your Word this morning, which is uh, to, to be found in Jesus Christ and because of being found in Jesus Christ, uh, see the fruit uh, which is in Christ flow out into our lives and towards others. We realize a challenge has been placed before us which is enormous, but also one which is able to be pursued by the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that as we walk our way through this very, very important chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, that we would walk away impressed with the love of God which has been manifested to us in the cross, And that that love would so continually and so deeply grip our hearts and our minds uh, that we would be changed people. That we would be changed people from inside out. A loving church full of loving individuals who are gripped with the power of the cross of Christ. And may that characterize and, and fill all of our actions. And that it would not only be a blessing to this body, but as we love each other, Uh, that the world would take note and that they would be pressed to ask the source of this love and the root of these actions and that through that, uh, your gospel may flourish. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.